Another area that I spend a lot of time on is sleep management and sleep discipline. I've heard you talk a lot about that. Yeah. Okay, good. And that's another area we spend time on. And if you'd like, we can come back and do another podcast and uh, and cover that in more detail if you'd like. But that's... that's yeah, something of, tells me we'll have to because there's a lot to unpack here. Put me in, coach. I love doing podcasts and I, I love the whole podcast revolution, how we've just busted away, you know, the the, the three networks and, uh, you know, this this control of, of our information. Uh, uh, you're part of the podcast revolution. You're putting out this info, but your, your listeners are even more worthy of praise because they're not satisfied with a five-minute soundbite. They're people who are de- seeking deeper levels of knowledge. And that's a be- one of, the, one of the, the few really positive things coming out of technology in our world today is that, that podcast revolution. I honor you and I honor your listeners. And if you like, I'll begin with that, uh, just getting that big picture right up front of something positive happening out there. And, and you're it. Sitting well, it's there crazy that- podcast. We exist in a time where you have TikTok, which is short form content on steroids. Yes. But you also have podcasts, which are, which can be hours long. Yes. And people are consuming both at crazy rates. I wonder if there's, it's worthy of of looking at just, uh, if they end up splitting into two camps, is there a camp that only does short form and is there a camp that does long form? And can we can we can we take people from that short form and pull them over the long form and uh, and get them a taste for deeper knowledge? You know, it's, yeah, bridge that divide. Amen. All right. It, so whenever you're ready, brother, and and, yeah. uh, and I pray that this will be a blessing to all who hear it. Jesus. No, yeah, we're going right now. We're right. on. Ah. <laughs> um, it was interesting. I actually came across you within the past few months prior to reaching out to you. I was reading on killing, and it was almost ironic to be reading that book with the chaos that is going on in the world today. I was constantly relating it to what's going on in Ukraine, what happened with Hamas, all of these external factors, and it's still directly applicable to your book. Well, you know, On on Killing uh, came out in 1995. Uh, Second edition kind of put it to bed and wrapped it up. Uh, it's uh, tr- it's half a million copies sold in English, translated into uh, into eight or nine languages now. Um, if you go to Google Scholar, scholar.google.com, you look up any published work and see how many times it's been cited in scholarly works. It's pretty cool. And, uh, and On Killing has been cited over 3,500 times in scholarly works. One of the really established self, one of the great scholarly works of our time, if you will. And, um, and the, the thing about that is how much it applies to what's happening in Israel right now. Uh, the difference between atrocity and acts of war. And this is huge difference. There's a whole section on atrocity in there. But the follow-on book to that is on combat, which in many ways is even more important. So I, I have a, a publisher in Ukraine who has published in Ukrainian language on combat and on killing. Uh, the U.S. Embassy bought a 1,000 copies to distribute to the Ukrainian troops. So, you know, you mentioned that. And it looks like in the near future, I'll be going to Ukraine to present their troops. Uh, when the war in Afghanistan began, Canada was in from the very beginning with, uh, with some absolutely world-class troops. And uh, the first Canadian unit that deployed to Afghanistan, it was their first fighting war since uh, Korea. You know, the first real shooting war since Korea. And they wanted to get it right. 
and that everything they could think of, including having me come and present to the regiment before they deployed. And one regiment, and, and since then, I, I really trained almost every single reg, Canadian regiment that deployed, and many, many, many of our, our American units. But one Canadian regimental commander, he told me, he said, you know, he said, the lads came back, and we asked them, so what worked? And they said, Grossman. He told us what would happen. He told us what to do about it. And it really was the best thing you gave us before we deployed. So they, they, that cycle has repeated itself. And and I hope that I can do something similar for Ukraine. And, and we're putting out some feelers to do the same for Israel. And, uh, and, and giving them that resiliency, but also that understanding what happens to mind to body in combat. And to know that this is normal. That this is normal. And, 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 and to understand what is PTSD and not to panic and understand what's normal. And, uh, and it's a crazy thing people don't realize. But when you look through the, the, the DSM on post-traumatic stress disorder, you can have every single one of the symptoms. And if they don't last a month, they're not PTSD, they're normal. It's when the symptoms last for over a month that we begin to say, okay, now we have something a little abnormal going on here. And there's so much value for people to realize up front, okay, this is normal, and, and I don't need to panic. But also to understand that we're really, really good at treating PTSD. And they come out the other end stronger. It's called post-traumatic growth. And so those are all part of that whole equation for our military units and the things they need to know as they come in and out of combat, what's going to happen to their mind and body, what they can do about it, how to reach out and bring it under control. And, uh, and that lies under the, the heading of my book on combat, which is uh, also Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading List. So on killing on combat, Ukraine, Israel, you're right. You know, we're right in the middle of all of that. And, uh, and it, it's an honor to be of service to the folks that are in the, in the middle of this, this, this living hell of, of combat. Well, and from an outside perspective, as someone who has not seen combat or taken a life or been a part of any of that, some of the stats that are in your book are mind-boggling how this resistance to killing is so fundamental in people, and you have to overcome that to actually go to combat. Uh, you know, I, I try to tell people about that, and uh, I tell them, you know, the hard thing to explain it's not that one in a million terrible crime that happened today. You know, you read the news and this horrible murder. And, and that proves that mankind's a killer. Well, well, that's an outlier. That's one in a million. We're a nation of a third of a billion people. That one terrible crime you heard about today is one in a third of a billion. You explain to me the 99.999% of our citizens who didn't kill anybody today. Explain that. Divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accident, <laughs> access to weapons. I mean, I mean, you know, how come people don't pick up a steak knife and 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 stab people to death? They argue over the table. I mean, why 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 doesn't that happen? And, and the answer is what I call killology, which is the scholarly study of killing. Criminology is not about teaching people to be criminals. Killology is not about teaching people to kill, but understanding the factors that enable and restrain killing. And there are all these physiological, psychological, sociological factors that restrain killing. And, and we can turn them on and we can turn them off. And that's a, a part of, of on killing, of course, is how we've learned how to make our soldiers and our troops able to pull the trigger. 
and how things in our society can be doing the same thing to our children. And, and that's part of the equation as well. Yeah. It really is a testament to how well society functions as a whole. Yes. That you don't have people just going on random killing sprees every day. It's a little harder to make the argument today with how crazy it is out there. Yeah. But in general, you can walk outside, go do whatever you got to do, and you're going to make it home. Yeah. And you know, and it, but it is bad and it is getting worse. It's a matter of degrees. Uh, medical technology is holding down the murder rate. Uh, you know, I, I was invited to the White House, part of the president's roundtable on violent video games. I'm invited back to the White House to brief the vice president. And I told him, you know, we're, we're lying every year. We talk about the number of dead people and we don't allow for medical technology. You know, uh, uh, we had one major study, UMass Harvard study, uh, uh, peer-reviewed journal, came out in the year 2002, between the 1960s and the 1990s medical technology had cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. That is, compare the murders between the 60s and the 90s. He had to take the murders in the 90s and multiply by a factor of three or four. And, and, and the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology in the 90s are astounding. And, and so, you know, imagine if somebody said, well, well, your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. You make $25 an hour. You're a hundred times better off than your grandpa. And of course, we all immediately see the lie. We all know about inflation. We know you can't compare minimum wage over time without allowing for, without allowing for, uh, you can't compare minimum wage without allowing for inflation. And you can't compare the murder rate over any period of time without allowing for medical technology. And we know that. And I beat up the FBI every time. You know, I trained them a lot. They said, we're not the ones doing this, Dave. You know, but I tell them, you're lying. Every year, you tell us a number of dead people, and you don't allow for medical technology. So it's actually much worse than it looks. It's still tremendously small. And you're right. The amazing thing is that we can go do what we do and come home for a lifetime. But when I was 18 years old, uh, I was in basic training. It was uh, 1974. Uh, and uh, I was in uh, basic training in Fort Ord, California. And over the Christmas holidays, I hitchhiked home to Minnesota and hitchhiked back again. I stood on the highway in my dress green uniform, hanging on my thumb, and truck drivers took me all the way home and all the way back again. And that was like the last gasp of the hitchhiking era. The hitchhikers are like the, the canary in the, in the mine. You know, they're they're this indication that our level of existential trust is completely broken down. We don't try to get a ride. We don't ask for rides. We don't pick up people who need rides. And, and that's kind of a terrible thing. So even though killing is relatively minuscule, and that's important, it has gone up. And our level of existential trust is, is breaking down. And, uh, and, and, and that's a bad thing. But, but we don't know that it really is that bad. We think we're just deceiving ourselves, but the explosion in violence is, is stunning. And what happened in 2020, uh, ex violence exploded at levels of magnitude greater than anything we've ever seen. And the media just isn't hardly talking about it because it points a camber right back at them. So it's, uh, it's a complex issue. Uh, the, the, the important question is why aren't there more murders? And when you understand what constrains murder, you begin to understand there are more murders. It is worse, but keep it in perspective. 
And that's a whole point about killing is just this scholarly, balanced understanding of the act of killing and what's happened in our society. Yeah, hitchhiking today is such a foreign concept. The idea that you would get into a stranger's car yes. to hitch a ride wherever you're going yeah. and just trust that you're going to be okay is insane. It, it, it is. And, and that does represent, like you said, the canary in the mine shaft, that things are worse. Things are decaying. Things are getting worse. And, and people understand that. One, one important critical aspect, interpersonal human aggression violent crime, if you will, or combat, is the most psychologically toxic and corrosive thing any human being will ever face. Uh, the DSM, the Bible of Psychiatry Psychology, when it talks about PTSD, it says that uh, the degree of trauma is usually more severe and long-lasting if the stress war is human in nature. So, so think about it like this. You know, if a, if a tornado hits a house while you're gone, Put your family in the hospital. How do you feel about that? Oh, thank God they're okay. Criminals break into the house while you're gone and beat your family in the hospital stay. How do you feel? That's all the difference in the world. Physically, they're identical. Psychologically, that's all the difference in the world. One is a random act of nature. The other is a malignant act by a human being. On 9-11, terrorists murdered 3,000 of our citizens. Our way life changed forever. We invaded two nations. But that same year, 30,000 people died in traffic accidents, didn't change nothing. They were accidents. And so, you know, just understand that we don't have an accurate measure of how bad it is, but people know it. People feel it. Uh, the media has been reporting this year. Here we are at, at the beginning of 2024, and the media's reported in 2023, the murder rate did go down a tiny bit. But we've got two crime reports. One is what's reported by police, and the other is what's called the, the crime survey. And they survey random people, and they get the data every year, and it's good, solid data. And the, the survey says that crime has exploded. And the law enforcement report said, no, crime is down a little bit. But what's happening is law enforcement's breaking down. There's whole parts of our city that's not being not even being policed. There's whole parts of the city are breaking down. Law enforcement recruiting has 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 just just collapsed. Retention has collapsed. Uh, uh, maintaining law and order has collapsed. We had an all-time record number of cops murdered in the line of duty uh, in, uh, in 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 2021, but in 2023 we had the all-time record number of cops shot. Now, not, it, it didn't all die, thanks to modern medical technology. Uh, on the modern battlefield, tourniquets alone have cut the loss of life in half, and tourniquets alone have cut the murder rate and the loss of cops in half. But the point is, we've got record number of cops murdered in the line of duty. We've got record number of cops being attacked. Uh, and, and, and the cops tell me, I'm training them nationwide. I'm out there all the time. They say, well, we know how to not get murdered. We know how to not get executed, assassinated. We just don't go to that part of town no more. Or we drive through that part of town and we don't enforce the law. And that's a tragedy of enormous magnitude because the people in that part of town are denied justice. They're denied the, the, the social contract. And it really breaks down. We've all heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and this foundation of every civilization 
so we're safe and secure and not a danger. The first need is for food, and the second need is to be safe and secure and not a danger. But it, I call it the social contract. Every civilization, the Pharaoh, the Romans, us, here's the deal. Here's the contract. You obey the law, you pay your taxes, and we'll help keep you safe. Ain't that the deal? Obey the law, pay your taxes, we'll keep you safe. If we can't keep them safe, why would they obey the law? Why would they pay their taxes? This breakdown of the social contract with this explosion of violence and, and our law enforcement community just circling the wagons and, 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 and not going out there, uh, this, is, this is tragic. And the people in those communities, they know it. They know there's something wrong. And it's not grandma being hit by lightning. It's not the family being hit by a tornado. It's human beings doing these things to us. And so this cancer of crime, this virus of violence in our civilization is, is very real and very exploding. And, and the people who are responsible for keeping us informed are pretty invested in saying, hey, it's all okay out there. You don't need to worry. It's all okay out there. And we know otherwise. We, we understand very much. It is, it's, it's very much not the case. Yeah, you're almost crazy if you try to point that out and say, hey, we have a problem. And the saddest part is it's not even a breakdown of the contract. It is a complete disregard of the contract nowadays. Well said. It is pay your taxes, accept that there's going to be crime, and just don't make a big deal about it. If your business gets broken into, if somebody's assaulted on the street, if you're walking past human fecal matter on the streets, just go about your day. Yeah. And, and that is, I never thought of that from that angle, Nick. You really nailed it. Those are all parts of the breakdown of the social contract. It's not just the breakdown. It's, it's the, the complete order to pay no attention to that. Uh, and, and that's fundamental human dynamics. We're, we're not wired that way. We cannot not pay attention to that. We're not wired that way. It's a baseline need of every civilization. And our, our politicians and our cities and our government are, are, are failing in that baseline need. And, and so bad stuff's coming down the road. And, and my primary focus is just resiliency and how to sustain yourself and, 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 and survive uh, whatever comes at you. I call it the I, bulletproof mind. I've heard you talk a lot about medical devices of today bringing that murder rate down. Yeah. And it seems like from the podcast that I've listened to you speak on, that almost gets some pushback from people. Yeah. It, it, Which it is just, baffling to me. Yeah, it, it, but I think we immediately logically grasp it. Of course, there's medical technology. Of course, it's saving ever more lives. But could it be a doubling, a tripling, a quadrupling? Could it be that much? And it is. And, and, and to accept that, then you have to wrap your mind around the fact that it's very, very, very bad. And that we're being lied to. And the situation is much worse than it looks. And, and, and nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news. You know, nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news. We, we say in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, no, not really. The media is more invested in saying, there's nothing to see here, people. It's, it's all okay. Uh, there's nothing to see here. It, it's, it, there's no problem out there. Uh, they're, they're very much invested in, in that. Uh, and, and the situation is much worse than it looks. Uh, so, you know, what do we do about it? And that is, as individuals, we become resilient. We identify the things we can control, and we do it. And the first step in resiliency is to understand how desperately bad the situation is. 
You're not paranoid for not picking up a hitchhiker. You're not crazy for keeping your house door locked. You're not crazy for carrying pepper spray or doing whatever you can legally do. These are reasonable, rational actions. First step in resilience is understand how bad it is. And the second step is to identify the things you can do and do them. Like Viktor Frankl walking out of a Nazi death camp without PTSD, he said, there's only one thing universities, bastards can't control. It's how I choose to respond. So if you sink into denial or complacency or bitterness, then that's the only thing you can control. And he's given the world a victory with your own hand. And, and we will not give them that victory. Do you understand? And, and so identify the things you can control and do them. Do you and, think that and, this and is that a, means, just yeah. an inherent bias in the statistics? Or do you think there's some desire to not make the situation seem that bad? Yeah. So you're talking about, we're kind of going back to that, that denial of how bad the situation is. I, I think that the people in control right now, I think the New York Times and, and, and the Washington Post and, and many other institutions are very, very frightened. They know what's happening. They have a good sense of how bad it is. And they're invested in trying to hold back the tide, trying to deny. You know, Kubler-Ross response stages to death and dying are very powerful. They're almost universal. Denial, anger bargaining acceptance. That's the short form. But there's four steps, you know, in the short version. And the first is denial. And then when you pop that denial bubble, there's anger. And then becomes bargaining. And then becomes acceptance. And right now, we're still pretty much at the denial stage, in which those who are in control of our civilization are very invested and saying, there's no problem out there. The economy's peachy keen, and, uh, and, and crime is just dandy, and, uh, and crime is actually down. Well, no, police reporting a crime is down, but the citizen survey says it's way up, it's way up, and they know that, and they know what's happening to them, and it is the most psychologically harmful and corrosive thing that could be happening is, is violent crime. It almost feels like that innate human nature comes into play where if you're faced with a problem and the problem feels overwhelming and insurmountable, you don't address it because you don't feel like you can. And so you focus on these other problems, these things that maybe you can have some small impact on and just ignore the fire in the room. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and where do you draw the line between identifying the things you can do and doing them and ignoring the fire in the room? You know, the one, one is denial and the other is action, but there's this broad spectrum in between the two. So I talk about, I, I, I floated this concept and became, I actually have a U.S. government trademark for the term sheepdog as a term for protectors. The sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog model, an extract out of my book on combat. And when we talk about that, that dynamic, the sheep and the sheepdog, there are no ultimate sheepdogs. There are all no ultimate sheep. There's just people up and down the scale. And I think there's value in taking a few steps up that scale. You know, locking that door, carrying that pepper spray. Uh, maybe if you think that you 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 can do it, and maybe taking that step towards a concealed carry permit, and 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 having the skills that go with it. You know, just carrying a guitar does not make you a musician. Just carrying a gun does not necessarily mean you're going to be ready. There's training that should come with that package. 
but but look at the things you can reasonably rationally do and do them. And, and that's one of the things our nation has going for us that almost nobody else in the first world or even second world nations have is our right to defend ourselves, our right to protect ourselves. That Second Amendment right, uh, it, it's just who we are. It's carved into the DNA of our nation. And our answer to a problem, uh, it, it can be uh, because it's there for us to circle the wagons and to keep your powder dry. Uh, and, and a lot of people are doing that. And again, there are people in government who are very frightened by that. And, uh, and, and are trying to say, you don't need, you know, you're, you're crazy if you carry a gun. You're crazy if you carry pepper spray. You'll just hurt yourself. Uh, yeah, you can't be trusted with these tools. You'll just hurt yourself. Uh, trust us. Trust the government. Trust the police. We'll keep you safe. And, and we know that's a lie. They're, well, they're I'm not, in California, and uh, you don't have to look very far to find that lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just trust us. Don't carry a gun, and uh, and don't 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 worry about keeping yourself safe. And dear Lord, don't don't even try to attack that violent defender who's come into your house. Uh, just just roll over and let them do whatever they want to. Uh, and, and 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 it's insane, and it's completely contrary to human nature, and it's completely contrary to the DNA of our nation. With that Second Amendment carved into the DNA, uh, it is counterproductive, and and the people know that. So so tell me. Where are the people of California going in these next uh, this next decade or so, faced with this breakdown of their civilization? Where do you see it going? What are what are the actions that people that you could take or your neighbors could take there in California faced with this dilemma? I don't know. Part of me thinks that California is essentially sliding off a cliff, and people are just going to leave until it finally implodes. I mean, you have even just from a personal defense standpoint. It feels like the state is against you at every turn. This, the idea that you brought up of, we'll take care of you. The police will protect you. You don't need to take care of yourself. Which, I mean, even if you want to look at crazy situations, take Uvalde. You had officers, and I'm, I support the police. I support good cops. But you had officers who stood outside while kids were being shot. And you think somebody's going to rush in to save you? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the stance you're going to stake your life on. You know, and, and it's interesting you've mentioned that because it's almost a watershed moment in law enforcement. And about 100,000 cops said, I, I, I would die to have been there, to have done the right thing. Uh, it, and, uh, but I was a Sheriff Grady Judd. is kind of a famous sheriff in Florida. He's been on, on the news a lot. Had the honor of going and training his organization, and they brought in other people from surrounding law enforcement, a great group of people. But Sheriff uh, Grady Judd, uh, uh, he, he said that uh, when Uvalde happened and he went home, his wife looked at him and said, if that happens here, now you don't go in. Don't bother coming home. Boom. You know, 2,500 years ago, when the Spartans went to war, their, their wives and their mothers would tell them, come back with your shield or on it. You know, 2,500 years later, that same dynamic is in place. So what a tragedy. And Uvalde was a perfect storm where everything went wrong. Uh, exterior door unlocked, interior door unlocked, apparently couldn't be locked. Had to work on it for, over, or for months to, to get it fixed so it could be locked. Uh, cops who didn't go in, a cop outside who had a shot. He had a shot with a rifle. I mean, I mean, several hundred thousand hunters would have given anything to have had that rifle shot. Here's a, here's a guy with a rifle going into a school, 
and the cop didn't take the shot. And it was a, a training issue. It was a skills issue. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and what would the media do to you? This kid hasn't committed this terrible crime. Here's this teenager that goes into school and a cop guns him down before he even gets in the school and commits a crime. Is a cop going to be attacked? You know, is a cop going to be, you know, the, the cops are asking questions like that. So it's this perfect storm. What people don't realize is that Cali- that Texas has made some major, major steps forward. You know, and the media is, oh, it's all gun control. Well, the whole gun control thing is a media desperately trying to point the finger somewhere else. And it's hollow. There's not some evil new gun out there. there there's not something new. You know, the M1 carbine, a 30-round, 20-round magazine, a semi-automatic military weapon, six million M1 carbines were manufactured in World War II. They flooded. In, in, in 1949, any kid in America would walk in the hardware store and buy an M1 carbine. And, and you know, up until 1968, any kid in America could order an M1 carbine through the mail and the U.S. mail would deliver their house. You know, so we're glad that's not currently the state. But there is no evil new gun out there. There's no evil new law. And it's the media and the things that they're doing, and, and they're desperately trying to point the finger somewhere else. And, and so this, this whole idea of uh, this gun dynamic, you don't need a gun, you would just hurt yourself, trying to blame it all on the guns, is, is almost like this, this, uh, uh, this act by the media to try to send the blame somewhere else. It's, it's the not boogeyman. that bad it, 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 because it keeps coming back around to them. One of the things that happens is the copycat effect. Uh, I, I was a West Point psych professor, and, uh, and uh, we taught a section on this. In the 1970s, we had what we call copycat suicides and the cluster suicides, cluster suicides. And the media would report high school suicides in the news, and there would be a bunch more high school suicides. And they all said, I know how to get in the news. I know how to make everybody sorry. We found out the hard way. You cannot do a memorial for a suicide victim in a school because you'll get a much more suicide victims. They'll say, I, I know how to get a memorial. I know how to make everybody. And, and it's hard to wrap your mind around that people will kill themselves to get in the news. Well, the same thing is true with this media coverage of these terrible crimes. And uh, um, you might remember that the mosque massacres in New Zealand, this guy live-streamed himself in two different mosques, committing this horrible mass murder. And the prime minister of New Zealand said, this man did what he did for notoriety, and we will not give it to him. She said, New Zealand will never say this man's name. New Zealand will never show this man's picture. We will not even give him his name. Boom. Somebody gets it. That's punishment. Make them nothing. Make them nobody. How many of these mass murderers can you list right now? If I, I gave you their names, you'd know the crime, you'd know all about them. That's not right. You know, for the first week, Give us a name, show us a picture, and then boom, shut it down. Don't give these people this fame. Uh, they're the Oxford, I, I've, got, I've got stuff that I use in my class. The, 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 the mass murder in Florida. Uh, and uh, in, uh, uh, it, it, this, this kid said that he uh, said, I'm going to be famous. He, he made a posting online. You're all going to know who I am. I'm going to be famous. The, the kid in Oxford, Michigan, that committed the school massacre, 
His, his final line in his journal is, I want the world to remember me. The final word in a journal is, I want the world to remember me. What's this guy's motive? Fame. And the media gives it to him. And they refuse to accept responsibility. So during the cluster suicide business, the media did the most gutless, cowardly thing the media could possibly do. They all got together and said, okay, we're not going to report high school suicides anymore. But we won't say we're gonna, not going to do it. We're not going to report it. We're not going to admit that we're doing any harm. Boom. They just buried it. And the same thing's happening with these, these copycat crimes. We're not going to admit that we're doing any harm, and we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. We're going to keep turning these killers into celebrities. So go back to Texas. The media's answer is gun control, gun control. How's that working out for Mexico? How's that gun control working out in Mexico? It's, it's more complex than that. So what did the state of Texas do? Boom. Number one, every door in every school will be shut and locked all the time. Boom. You know, half the cost of a modern building goes into fire code. Uh, fire sprinkler system under pressure for the lifetime of the building and electrical support of a fire code. And we all know that you don't block a door. Well, you can't block the fire exit. And why? It's the law. I, I, I've told people since I was there on the night of the massacre in Jonesboro, a year before Columbine. And I've been telling people for 30 years, make it the law and people don't do it. Tell them to shut the door and lock it. They're safe for a day. Make it the law. They're safe from now on. And now how's thinking hard is it to make it the law that every, every door in every school will be shut and locked all the time? Exterior doors, interior doors, shut and locked. The people in need to go in have got a key. Uh, how hard was that? Now, number one, all classroom doors will be locked. Now, all, all interior, exterior doors, every school will be locked, shut and locked all the time. Now, how hard was that? Number two, there will be laminate film on any glass on the door beside the door. So it doesn't do any good to lock the door and shoot out the glass and crawl in. We saw the Covenant School massacre in Nashville. We saw that girl shoot out the glass and crawl in and come in and murder six people. Now, I, I, it would have been like 30 bucks of laminate film on that front on that door, and they'd all be alive today. It, it doesn't necessarily make it bulletproof. It's shatterproof. You shoot holes in it and you beat on it. Getting through that door anytime soon, the, the, the massacre in, uh, in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, a Sandy Hook massacre. Uh, our doors are locked. We buzz people in. Your kids are safe. It's glass. All he had to do was shoot out the glass, step in and murder 26 people. So number one, keep the stinking doors locked. This isn't, this isn't rocket science. Make it the law and it'll get done. Number two, put the laminate film on any glass on the door beside the door. And, 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 and so it doesn't really good to lock the door and have shoot out the glass, reach in and open the door. Number three, there will be somebody in every school that can shoot back. Now, with two exceptions, there has never been a multiple homicide in a school when there was somebody in that building that could shoot back. When there's and basically an armed cop, if there's an armed cop in the school, the probability goes down to virtually zero. Now, the two exceptions were Santa Fe, Texas, and Oxford, Michigan. In both cases, the minute the cop got there, not another kid died. Statistically speaking, one of the best things we could do is put a cop in that school. But we don't have enough cops. We don't have enough cops to, to fill all the slots we have, let alone put one in every school. So what we're doing nationwide is we're training and arming educators. And we've had 100% success. Now, the Sandy Hook Elementary School, the first one to die, 
was Principal Don Hochsprung, an unarmed woman who simply charged the killer. What did she think she was going to do? In the Covenant School Massacre, the first one died as a janitor, and the next one to die was the principal, again, female principal, who just charged at the killer. What did they think they were going to do? I had an elementary school teacher tell me. She said, I will die for my children tomorrow. Give me something besides my keys in my hand when that day comes. Those words haunt me. I will die for your children tomorrow. Give me something besides my keys in my hand when that day comes. So in Ohio, for over a decade, 85% of all counties in Ohio have had armed educators, 100% success. Nobody even knows that. A, a judge in Ohio two years ago said they're not getting enough training and shut it down. And so the legislature rammed through a law that said, yes, they have received enough training. They can do this. How did the media report it? Ohio lowers the standards to be armed in the schools in Ohio. They didn't say we've been doing 100% successful over a decade. Virtually every school in Utah has had armed educators since the Columbine master. How many armed educators in Utah? Nobody knows. It's completely decentralized. The individual superintendent, the individual principal has the right to decide who would carry in the school. The law outside the school is the law inside the school as far as concerned carry, concealed carry. And there's somebody in every school that ought to be carrying a gun. 100% success over 20 years. In Florida, a third of all schools have got the, what they call their guardians, their armed educators, 100% success. Uh, and, and, and the thing to understand is it, it's a money issue. We can train an arm. There's one or two people in every school who ought to be trained in arm. Go back to the Ohio model. In, in Ohio, it's called FASTER, Faculty and Staff Training for Emergency Response. Number one, you have to be nominated by your fellow educators. Number two, you have to arrive with marksmanship skills. At the end of the training, you're going to qualify at the same level as law enforcement. When you've got to have that skill ahead of time. Uh, and, 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 and then at the end of the, 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 the training, uh, we've got to demonstrate their marksmanship skills that they would have brought with them in the first place. And, and so Ohio's had this incredible success with basically week-long training. So a re reporter from the London Times came and took the training. And he said in the London Times, he said, I never thought I would say this. Having taken the training, having seen the people taking the training and talked with them, I now support armed educators in American schools. London Times, buried on page five and never mentioned again. The things that were not being told the things that are being done nationwide. Keep the doors locked. Put the laminate film on the glass. Have somebody at the school that can shoot back. These are things we can do that cost virtually nothing. But the media's only answer is gun laws. We need more gun laws. Well, how's that working out for Mexico? You know, it's, it's more complex than that. So it, it's all a, a, about coming back around to understanding there is a problem out there. And and the measures that we can take. Identify the things you can do. Keep You know, after the... Uh, after the Sandy Hook massacre, cops nationwide told me that teachers are just in tears. What can I do? What can I do? Lock your classroom door. Boom. <laughs> Here's something you can do. You know, lock the classroom door. Uh, and, and if that had happened in Sandy Hook, the interior doors, the classroom doors unlocked, exterior door, the glass was shot out. But there's things that we can be doing. And, and that brings us back to identify the things you can do and do them. And, uh, and there are things that are completely doable. 
like it, arming and training educators or keeping the doors locked, as opposed to media's only answer is, oh, more gun laws, more gun laws, which is just them trying to point the finger somewhere else. The media coverage aspect is challenging because it can be a double-edged sword, right? So you do have that situation where they overcover a story and then almost incentivize that copycat aspect. But you also have the challenge where they bury stories. I think it was that Covenant school shooting where they wouldn't release the manifesto from the shooter. Yeah. And it seems like that was very deliberate based on the leaks that came out Amen. from that. Amen. And that's it's just as bad as overcovering. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting dynamic here. I'm using the term shooter for a mass murder. We use the term shooting for a massacre. And, and the way the media has even controlled our language, shooting is an Olympic sport. Shooting a movie, shooting a TV show wins Oscars and Emmys. Shooting baskets make you millions of dollars for professional basketball players. In movies, cowboys shoot and soldiers shoot. It's a very honorable thing to do. And when we take this word, instead of using the word massacre, we call them shootings. And instead of killers, we call them shooters. And people are actually offended when you use the word killer for one of these little mass murderers. There were people that were offended because she was getting misgendered. Yeah. This person who massacred people. (laughs) It's funny how the whole gender thing went away when we realized she's a mass murderer. But our language is being impacted. The very word using, you know, and, and, and shooting is this honorable thing. I'm a shooter. I'm going to, I'm going to make a shooting. Not, I'm not going to commit a massacre. I'm going to commit a murder. I'm going to commit a shooting. And and we've taken a very positive term, shooting, and use it for the term for the most horrible crimes in our nation. And and, and one thing we can't control is the words come out of our mouth. And to take a massacre and call it a shooting, we we see how they're, they're programming our language and the things we can do. And one of the things we can control is the words come out of our own mouths. And we, we really made some progress across years in law enforcement to stop using the word shooting for, for a mass murder. And, uh, and, and but we see how we're programmed, and we automatically, unthinkingly use that term. And that's the media putting the language and, and putting the spin on it. You know, we, we talk about pro-life or, or, or you know, pro-choice. Well, they, they put a spin on the language. And, and, and we understand it. We understand both sides, pro-choice, pro-life. They put a positive spin on it. But this, this, this spin on blaming the whole thing on the guns, it's not a murder, it's a shooting. And the cause of a shooting is the gun, you see. Uh, when worldwide we're seeing, we're seeing knife massacres and what's coming next, and I pray that I'm wrong, we're going to see school bus massacres, we're going to see daycare massacres, what's left to stun us, what's left to shock us. You know, another elementary school massacre has been done three times. You know, you're not going to hit the big news. But a school bus full of dead kids, I pray that I'm wrong. We've seen this around the world. We've seen, China's seen repeated daycare massacres with knives and axes. We had a daycare massacre in in Belgium. And we had one in Brazil just a year ago. And uh, and it's coming like a freight train, and and they're gonna they're gonna commit this this most horrendous possible imaginable crime, and, and the media is gonna be all over it. They're gonna turn them into celebrity, and we'll see the same cycle be repeated. When do they ever accept any responsibility for the harm they're doing? They want to take your guns. They want to they want to lock down and control the news, but they won't accept any responsibility for the harm that they're doing. And when we see this constant dive to ever more evil, vicious crimes. 
uh, know that, that it's all about getting media coverage. And you got to commit the next most horrible crime in order to be the star of this, this, this show. And we know that that is a motivation in many ways for these terrible, terrible crimes and the media feeds it. And, how, do you, and, how do you balance that though? How do you yeah. cover something so horrific without almost glorifying it in the eyes of some? Yeah, I, I think it begins, like I said, by uh, taking this agreement that for the first week, we'll identify the killer, we'll show his picture, and then boom. I, I, don't keep repeating it. Make him nothing. Make him nobody. The, the media has power in what they do report, what they don't report, as you've said, and they choose what not to report. And they can choose to not report high school suicides, and they can choose that not turn these killers into celebrities. I kind of like this idea of language that you're touching on that almost that plays into it, that rather than focus on the guns, you should be condemning the act and condemning the person that did it, which doesn't seem like that happens that often. Yeah. The media's only solutions are more gun laws. Well, like I said, it's more complex than that. You know, how's that working out for Mexico? You know, there's not some evil new gun out there. But the media is desperately trying to point the finger somewhere else. They have this blood on their hands. He turned these killers into celebrities. The murder rate has exploded like nothing we've seen before. And again, keep it in perspective. You know, the amazing thing is the murders that don't happen. But we've, we've got this whole industry. And I've got, like I said, uh, the book I co-authored with Glenn Beck, uh, best book ever done on the subject, uh, Glenn Beck, Control, I added my name there. I co-authored with him. And he, I think I wrote more of the book than he did. He gets the name on the front. Great guy. Uh, but uh, uh, best thing ever written. The first two thirds of the book say that guns have always been there. The guns are not new. The last third of the book say, what is the new factor? Uh, my book, Assassination Generation, also it's, it's a key dynamic on what's going on. So much of what I'm talking about here, about violent crime dynamics and the media coverage and the other stuff is all in there. But the other piece of the equation is this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. And, and the thing to realize is that this sleep deprivation makes you stupid. It's like you're drunk. 24 hours without sleep and your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. And so the link between sleep deprivation and suicide is overwhelming. Uh, I've lost uh, 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 two nephews and a brother to suicide. I studied suicide intensely, and it wasn't until the last decade or so that I just stumbled on the research showing the link between sleep deprivation and suicide, and suddenly, boom, it starts making sense, and pieces of the puzzle come together. It is not a natural act to take your own life. Every living organism will desperately fight to preserve themselves. To intentionally take your own life, you have to have profoundly impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide have always been closely related. Alcohol creates this impaired judgment. You make a bad decision, never a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. And here's um, sleep, um, uh, suicides of teenagers, between it worldwide, every nation, every demographic group except the Amish, suicides have exploded. Teenagers, 10, 11, 12-year-old, Tween-age girls' suicide rate in America has tripled per capita in the last decade. And here's parenting one-on-one for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. 
no laptop in the room, no cell phone in the room. They got to go to the room and sleep. So a cop came up to me during a break in a presentation. He said, I had one of those teenagers. He said, she was a good girl. She was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. Family policy, cell phone, the charger, go to bed. Okay, I trust you. Keep your cell phone. He said, a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, endless bullying. And he can't just ignore that. We're not wired that way. He said it was heartrending. This year, up all night long, night after night, trying to defend herself online, trying to find somebody to stand up for. So I immediately understood my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented, and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? He said, one thing on earth good enough for my little girl was let her turn, take her cell phone, turn off all the bad stuff in this world. Who's going to be your mommy? Who's going to make you turn that stuff off? This epidemic of sleep deprivation, the head of Netflix said their competitor is sleep. The corporate policy of Netflix is to steal your sleep. So sleep deprivation is a key factor in a global explosion of suicide. It's a key factor in an explosion of traffic deaths. Decade after decade, we brought traffic deaths down, airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now in the last decade, traffic deaths have exploded. What is the new factor worldwide? There's a reason why airline pilots and truck drivers and 20 other professions are required to log enough sleep. Two major killers of our kids, suicide and traffic death. Uh, another major factor in the equation is the opiate epidemic. Why opiates? Prescription opiates have always been there. Why isn't it crack? Why isn't it meth? Why are opiates the drug of choice? Well, sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. To do an online search of sleep deprivation suicide, boom, sleep deprivation and chronic pain, boom, come right up. And the sleep deprivation and chronic pain, doc, I heard all the time, give me a little pill. You don't need a pill, you need more sleep. And got to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch to stop you from getting deep cycle sleep. And, and, and just all of this is out there. Uh, but if you turn off the video games, if you turn off social media, if you turn off Netflix, they lose money. And so they, they're, they're invested. Your time is money. And we got this, this, this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. One final ingredient in the equation. We've got 200 years and 10,000 studies showing a link between alcohol and violent crime. I believe without a doubt, there's a powerful link between sleep deprivation and violent crime. This irrational behavior, the irrational anger, all the stupid stuff that we do when we're sleep deprived, without a doubt, one of the factors in this global explosion of violence is this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. And these industries, they're stealing our sleep. So I, I give people an angle on this. My dad started smoking in 1941, when he was five years old. He said he plunked a nickel on the counter, couldn't even look over the counter at the local general store, plunked a nickel on the counter, bought a pack of bullworm tobacco and rolling papers, and began smoking five years old. Hey, candy rots your teeth, right? Candy rots your teeth. Cigarettes are good for you. They believe that. Cigarettes are good for you. And, and, and it's his money, and he wants to buy cigarettes. 
Well, that's his business. So give you an angle on, on what they thought. Here's a here's a camel ad that says uh, more doctors smoke camels. Any other cigarette? Oh, no, fuck, smoke camels. Huh? Oh, here's a Viceroy ad that says, add your dentist. I would recommend Viceroy. Oh, dentists say Viceroy. Doctors say camels. We, they're poison. They're all poison. Don't do it. Well, 55 years later, the cigarettes finally killed my dad. But the point is that it's the same thing. We got this industry that wants to sell their product to children. And, and, and the video game industry, and not just the violence, but the sleep deprivation comes with a package that they've received patents for things that make the video game addictive. It's just virtually impossible to turn off. And, and, and in 2002 or 2005, the state of California overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. Silicon Valley said, we're good with that. Hollywood said, yeah, we're good with that. Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Arnold signed the bill, 2005, limiting children's access to violent video games. And the video game industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court. They said, we have a constitutional First Amendment right to sell this toxic, addictive, violent game to any kid at any age, and you cannot stop us, and you cannot regulate us any way, shape, or form. And they conned seven old men, seven Supreme Court justices, probably never played Pong in their life, overturned the California law. But it's in the book, Assassination. Look at the dissenting opinions. They're very powerful, the dissenting opinions and what's going on. But all the way back there, the industry is fighting tooth and nail to do what? to sell this stuff to children. And that's where we cross the line to evil. You know, it's one thing to sell cigarettes or alcohol to adults. All right, they're adults. They make a rational. But when you sell cigarettes or alcohol or, 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 or automobiles or firearms or sex to children, that's where you cross the line into a realm of evil. And this whole industry is evil. And, and, and they don't care that they're, 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 they're marketing to children. Uh, they, they, they say, oh, yeah, we have a rating system. Well, I, I talked about the ratings in many lies for the price of one. But uh, uh, this, this, is, this is where we're at right now. It's a major challenge for civilization right now. Uh, these violent games and these violent movies inflicted upon children, the physiological impact that we've got the brain scan data in the book, and then the sleep deprivation that comes with the equation. we got an entire civilization of sleep deprived and the irrational dynamics that go with this. Caffeine abuse, we got this massive doses of caffeine that we're pounding into our bodies and, and the impact of that on, on our sleep and the, and the chronic pain. Uh, and, and all of these industries are fighting tooth and nail to do one thing, to sell these products to children. And, and that's where they've crossed the line into the realm of evil. And, and, and that's what we can control is what happens to our children. Go back to the baseline dynamic. What can I control? And, and that's what happens to my children. Uh, 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 there's an outfit called ScreenStrong.com, Screen, S-C-R-E-E-N, Strong, S-T-R-O-N-G.com. And they're the best people nationwide on TV turnoff week and an online support group and detoxing our kids and do your kids really need a cell phone at this age? And, and, and they're doing some great work out there. And the one thing we can control is our home and our children and our family to raise them to be to be better and, and, and to watch for that sleep deprivation and all the tragic things that come with that package. Uh, kind of as, as kind of a final nugget, if I can, on, on resiliency is identifying the things you can't control. And in the end, we, we all agree, the only thing the universe can control is yourself. And that means 
if you lose your temper, you didn't lose it. You gave it away. And so the first step is understanding it is never, never appropriate to lose your temper. And I'm ashamed of something I did with my children. I've got grandchildren, I've got a grandson in the army at Blankville, I'll be a great grandfather, and we can do a better job at the next generation. But the thing, I had, a, I had a dad who lost his temper and smacked me upon occasion. I thought that's the way life should be. It's not. It's not. Uh, it, it is never appropriate to lose your temper. It, it, fight or flight, feed and breed, these are biological dynamics that have to be kept under control. Well, I understand that. And the first step is understanding is, you know, leadership is never about screaming at people. In the military, in basic training, the drill sergeant gets a face and shouts at you. It's a form of stress inoculation and intentionally used in that one circumstance, completely inappropriate anywhere else. We're taught when we punish, we punish in sorrow, never in anger. And, and, and screaming is not leadership. Uh, and, and the drill sergeant goes to a normal unit. Oh, the drill sergeant's out of control. And norm, no, the drill sergeant would never do that in a normal unit because they know it's a game that we played in one circumstance. And really, when we learn this, it's, it's just terribly important. It's all about self-control. We talked about, about the laconic Spartan, the stoic Roman, the inscrutable samurai, the stiff upper lip Brit. And today we talk about the silent professional, the quiet professional. And they're all different ways of saying the same thing, self-control. And the one thing that have been honored throughout the centuries is self-control. And it begins with your family. It begins with your children. And that's not easy. And the first step is understand it is never, ever appropriate to lose your temper. And, and you always respond in sorrow. And one way to control this, now this is a biological dynamic. You have fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, feed and breed, parasympathetic nervous system. And one of the ways we can get fight or flight under control is taking a big swig of water. And the big swig of water sends a message to the body that says we're safe. It pulls you from fight or flight to rest and digest. Another tool is a piece of candy. And you put something in your mouth. And I tell my cops nationwide, that, uh, you know, if you lose your temper, uh, you didn't lose it, you gave it away. It's easy to say, but it's so easy to do. No, I, I tell them, you know, we got, we got nasty grams from Antifa and, and other people, you know, that just attack media and the cancel culture. And, and they, they say, I'm going to rape my dog and kill my family and do all this good stuff. And I can't control these idiots do. That's the only thing I can control is how I choose to respond. So when I get... A piece of hate mail from somebody like that. I've I, I got some candy that I, get, you know, have a piece uh, every so often, you know, and I could have a piece of candy, you know, and I almost look forward to it. I, I tell my cops, I tell them, you know, uh, and anybody can do this. It really is important. Uh, when you're up here in fight or flight, the last thing you can think of is eating. And the swig of water, putting something in your mouth, and chewing, salivating, Pulls you from fight or flight to rest on that. It really, truly does help you reach out and grab conscious control over unconscious processes. So I tell my cops, I, I like Tootsie Rolls. Uh, they're individually wrapped. You know, the little ones, they, they, they're good in the heat. They're good in the cold. They stay clean. They remind me of Halloween candy, you know. So uh, have a little bag of Tootsie Rolls in the dash of your car. 
And as a cop, you only get to have one of those Tootsie Rolls when somebody's disrespectful. They give you the finger, they mouth off at you, they don't comply. You have a Tootsie Roll. And, and this is actually a, a cognitive rational therapy in which you, you make yourself, dis, from cognition, decide how you're going to rationally deal with the, the feelings that come with it. I had a cop tell me, he said, I'd be fat in a month. I'd be fat in a month. Yeah, I'd be punching Tootsie Rolls down every day. He said, so I use Smarties. He's like, I'm a little Smarties. And I take my little chill pill. I take one Smartie and put it in there. They regain control. Because these bastards don't control how I respond. And if some bastard makes me lose control, then he wins. I'm not going to let him win. You know, to paraphrase Viktor Frankl, life is a game. And you lose your temper, you lose the game. Now, that, that's easy to say. It ain't so easy to do. But the first step is understanding that it is never, ever appropriate to lose your temper. And then the second step is understanding some of the tools we can use to control that. The big swig of water, Tootsie Roll. You know, nationwide, I do a lot of presentations in hospitals. I teach grand rounds and psychiatric grand rounds, and PTSD and other things. But there's something sweeping around the nation. Uh, uh, if, if a meth head or a crackhead is tearing up the ER, they grab a bag of M&Ms. They rip it open. They shove the guy's face, which likes some M&Ms. And a large portion of the time completely diffuse the situation. Now, one spec ops guy, he told me his wife is an is a ER psychiatrist. And she told him about that. And he said, I thought that's the goofiest thing I've ever heard. Bag of Tootsie Rolls. Right. Yeah, sure. Or, no, no, bag of M&M. Shove the M&M in the face. She, that's just, that's bizarre. This kind of guy, high-level spec ops guy, carries gun off duty, kind of guy you want to. He said, two different times, I'm off duty with my wife, and I think I'm going to have to draw my gun and fight for our lives. Both times, my wife reaches in her purse, grabs a bag of M&Ms, rips it over, shoves the guy's face, would you like some M&Ms? And completely diffuse the situation. He said, that's one thing what a pretty girl does. It. <laughs> Still good to have plan B back here. But, but that, that dynamic of pulling ourselves from fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, to rest and digest or feed and breed, parasympathetic system, is all part of the process. And, and understanding that the backlash, you know, the fight or flight, it's called the four Fs, fight or flight, feed and breed. And, uh, and, and so this, 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 this sexual reproductive response to, to a traumatic event is powerful. A lot of crime victims, uh, people who are victims of violent crime, will go home and have very, very intense sex. And they're seeking reassurance and they're seeking closeness, but they're also this biological response from fight or flight to feed and breed. And Frank Herbert called it the universal drive for immortality through progeny in the face of death, whatever it might be. It happens to a lot of first responders. And I tell all my first responders, you know, if, if, if you get this biological response, you go home, you have really intense sex. Uh, you know, not a whole lot of person with this job. Find one, you know, relax and enjoy it. Off duty. Wait till you're off duty. I tell them, it's amazing how many people get in trouble every year for having sex on the job. And they're being blindsided by this physiological response. We all know about, you know, fight or flight. We all know about the anger response. We know we got to control it. Well, we didn't know about feed and breed. 
and we know we got to control it. This is never an excuse. The Army brought me out to train all of our sexual abuse and harassment investigators and counselors. And, uh, and I told them, look, you know, we all know about fight or flight. It's never an excuse. Well, I was out of control. The fight or flight moments can't. I, I punched this lights out. I couldn't control. Okay, we understand. You're good. No, no. It's never an excuse. And the feed and breed hormones kicked in. I couldn't. No, no. That's never an excuse. But if we understand that's our normal, natural, normal response, then we reach out and bring it under control. And, and it's all about, in the end, taking the things that are, aren't under control. It's called the autonomic nervous system. We got, we got sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic, fight or flight, feed and breed. Ordinarily, these responses aren't under conscious control, but we bring them under conscious control. You know, the swig of water or just the breathing exercise. For 26 years, I've taught the breathing exercise for spec ops and, and cops are out there using it every day. Right now, you're not consciously controlling your breathing. It's autonomic. When you reach out and grab conscious control of the breathing, breathe in for three, four, hold for four, let it out for four, four, hold two, three, four. You just took something from unconscious control to conscious control. Everything else can come with it. So breathing control, the swig of water, the M&M, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the Tootsie Roll, well, whatever these things are, this is a true revolution in, in human progress. When we begin this systematic process of taking the things we thought weren't under control, it's called autonomic nervous system, and bringing them under conscious control. Breathing, uh, uh, the, the bottle of water, the food, the application dynamics, the, the understanding, uh, bringing us back around to self-control. And, and the tools we can use to do that, the breathing exercise, of course, you don't always have water. You can always stop and take a breath and just take that deep breath. And, and I'm convinced that part of the breathing is the counting. And my dog, I've got a couple of great dogs, but they, they can only count to about three. You know, they got one, two, a whole bunch. One, two, a bunch. So as you breathe, you say in through the nose, two, three, four, hold, two, three. Four, out through the lips, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, again and again. It's being used across our spec ops community, across our cops, and to reach out and grab conscious control uh, of, of the part of your body that, that previously we thought wasn't under conscious control. And the breathing is, is almost like the leash on that puppy. I call that autonomic nervous system, fight or flight, feed and breed. It's, it's a puppy inside. It's that part of ourselves that's not under conscious control. You bring it under conscious control, everything else comes with it. And that's really the heart of, of our, our quest for self-mastery. It's heart of our quest for, for, for resiliency, is to reach out and take all the things that aren't under conscious control anger and sexual drives and, uh, and, and food drives and, uh, and, 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 and take all those things and bring them under conscious control. And, and it's really the next evolutionary step, I believe, us as a species is to reach out and grab that control and, uh, and understand what's happening in life and death events. Uh, you know, one of the things when we talk about self-mastery, my, my book on hunting came out uh, last year. Uh, on killing, on combat, and on hunting. And, and understand the role that hunting has in who we are and what we do. If as a species, we've existed for 24 hours, 
up until the last six minutes, all we did was hunt. It's what we're wired to do. It's what we're made to do. And, uh, and, and a lot of dynamics that happen there. Hunters know you pull the trigger, you don't hear the shot. The only other place where that happens is in combat. And a set of self-mastery and a set of physiological dynamics. And uh, to give you an angle on it, uh, um, my grandson is in the Army. Now, my grandson was seven years old. We took him to deer camp. And he came back a week later, grubby and dirty, got out of school for a week. His mom said, what'd you like the best? He said, gutting the deer. For a seven-year-old boy, what was inside that deer was fascinating. This is the kidney, and this is the liver, and this is the heart, and these are the lungs. And, and you got the same stuff inside you, and you smell the same inside. And we took the back strap off, we put it on the grill, and some barbecue sauce, and meant food in your stomach right now. And if the first time you are confronted with what's inside a living creature is some terrible crime scene, some horrible combat scene, some tragic accident. If the first time you ever encountered that is in this tragic accident, then we set you up for failure. You should have been exposed to those things in a positive way from your youngest days. So I talk about that in On Killing, how we've fled this process of necessity to, 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 to that killing is to live. Even, oh, I, I'm a vegan. Well, we exterminate millions of rats and mice around the grain elevators every year. If we didn't do that, you would get in that grain elevator, they would reproduce exponentially, and we would all starve. And for you have your, your vegan bread, and good for you, millions of rats and mice had to die. Right now, millions of microorganisms are dying in your body. And when you stop killing microorganisms, you die. And, and so we talk about hunting. And the role of hunting and preserving nature, how we need to be in nature, how, how our wellness is so revolving around being outside, being in nature. And, uh, and we got this, this example of, of, uh, of what the trophy hunters are bringing to the package. And in, in, uh, in Kenya, they have banned all trophy hunting. And the game is being slaughtered. They're just being slaughtered. Well, in Namibia, they drew a circle around every village, said, everything in this circle belongs to you. So that crazy American will pay $100,000 to come shoot that, that lion. And that lion is at the end of the food cycle anyway. It is the end of his life cycle. And by the way, dying of old age in nature is a slow, hideous, horrible death. If you don't have a predator to give you a reasonably quick death, and predators will eat you while you're still dying without hesitation, but most people die of, most critters die of old age in nature. Uh, it takes weeks and they're eaten alive by rodents and insects. Uh, and, and so this, this crazy American will come and pay $100,000 for a quick ethical death at the end of the life cycle. And all of that money goes to the village. And they have all the game wardens you want. They're deeply invested in protecting their game. They're deeply invested in protecting the wilderness. And it's the only answer, you know, I, uh, uh, hunting licenses every year in America. Uh, the deer tags hunting license provide millions and millions of dollars. So they're, they're in most cases, the only source of income for Department of Natural Resources or, or game and fish or whatever you got in your state that takes care of your outdoors. And the only income for them, folks, is coming from deer tags and hunting licenses and all the other stuff, fishing licenses, all the stuff that comes with that. All that's in the book on hunting. Understanding how critical that is to our overall wellness and our, our response to, to violence and our understanding the, the cycle of life and understanding that someday you too will be dead. And someday you too will be, will be it, it the same. And this sense of, 
a, a, an enormity and gratitude when you walk up with that deer and then you, you eat it and you, you, you harvest your own protein and you put it into the cycle. Uh, it's hard to grasp how important that is to our overall wellness dynamics. Well, and how detached we've gotten from that. Most people will never take the life of any animal and just go to the grocery store to get their food. And the same applies to guns. Most people never come face to face with a firearm except for maybe in an instance when it's being used against them. And then the fear kicks in. They've never gone to a range. They've never, their grandfather or father or mother never took them anywhere to go shooting. They've never held one. And so it's this foreign, scary object. And, and so, uh, kind of talking about identify things you control and do them, the thing for them to do would be to go to a range or to have a friend who would teach them. And to at least have that experience, and then to make an a, an informed decision on whatever the next step might be, uh, and, and that, that's really a great point. You'll come back to your kind of your your bedline, you know, of Victor Frankl. Uh, you know, the, the only thing the universe can't control is how I choose to respond. So instead of responding with denial and anger, the next step is bargaining, and 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 that. Well, let me go to the range and see what it's like. I got a friend who'll take me to the range. I'll go there and I'll get trained and I'll see what it's like and see what it's all about. And, and then make an educated decision on the final stage, whether or not you accept that in your own life. But identify those things you can control and do them. Let go of everything else. On the gun issue, there's nothing you personally can do about changing the laws one way or the other. All you can do is having yourself be informed and experienced and aware by going and having that experience or going with friends who hunt. I really, really, truly, the definitive book on hunting is being turned into online college class now. But read the book and, and go with friends who hunt and see what that's about and, and explore that aspect of life and, and see what it means to you and whether or not it's right for you. But these are all things that you can do. Uh, and, 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 and when things become unglued, being able to harvest your own protein and bring in that resource is, is not a bad thing either, to being able to, uh, to, to depend on nature. During the pandemic, we saw a huge increase in hunting. A lot of people were depending on it for their own income, uh, for their own, uh, their own protein supply and their own food supply. And firearm ownership. Yes. Spiked. Yes. Yes. And we're seeing an increase in firearms ownership across America. But that comes back, you know, that, uh, that, and, and again, having that gun's important, and we don't deny it. And a baseline of training is maybe enough to begin with, but just carrying a guitar does not make you a musician. And once you've made the decision to have that gun, and that's, I think, a reasonable, rational decision. Once you've, you've, you've made the own assessment, you get a concealed carry class, you've, you've demonstrated your level of baseline level of skill, but it shouldn't stop there. You should be striving for higher levels of skill now. It's better going to the range or receiving training. I'm a big fan of the martial art of the firearm, Hujutsu, H-O-J-U-T-S-U dot com. Uh, Hujutsu is a Japanese art of the firearm. The, the fire arts, uh, Japan banned firearms. Uh, they've been resurrected by an, a, an amazing American, uh, Jeff Hall, uh, uh, most decorated Alaska state trooper, a Vietnam ranger, one of 30-odd grandmaster pistol shots on the planet, high-level martial artists in multiple fields, resurrected hujutsu, the Japanese martial art, and really is the art of the pistol. Around the world, if you want to use a sword, uh, Japan or Europe, unarmed combat, you know, savat or, or karate or taekwondo, or, but 
if you want to learn to use a pistol, come to America. Well, that's us. That's who we are. This is our martial art. And so Hojutsu uh, is really for just you know, baseline beginners. We've had people come in that bought a gun and have no experience. And we walk them on through our three-day weekend, and they get lots of experience and lots of shooting and lots of coaching. And, and you know, I grew up in the martial arts. I love the martial arts. We have, we don't have pistol teams anymore. We, we don't have bowling leagues anymore. We have over 20 million Americans in the martial arts. The idea of striving against a standard, getting that next belt, it's brilliant. You know, the structure of the dojo, uh, hojitsu is just something I recommend highly, but whatever it is, take that next step. Identify the things you can do and do them. Uh, things are bad. You get it under control. The amazing thing are the 99.99 that didn't kill anybody today. But things are crazy bad, and they're getting worse, and the wheels are coming off the butts. And preparing yourself and doing the things you can do, that's the path of wellness. That's the path of, of, of self-control and, 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 and resiliency that we, we want every, every citizen to have. Where do you think that we're going from here? I mean, if you took the situation as a whole, whether, I mean, even just looking at law enforcement or the military, recruitment numbers are down, people are getting out. We have these wars that are going on. We have the situation unfolding in the Red Sea. We have all of these different variables that seem to be ramping up. We got China just determined to take Taiwan, and we don't know what that's going to mean. Uh, yeah, I can tell you, it's, uh, I enlisted in 1974. And, uh, and military was, was out of control. Druggies ran the barracks. If you wanted to live in the barracks and didn't want to do drugs, you had to fight. All you had to do is just do a little drugs and then you're not a threat to them. You understand? And, uh, the idea that people being trained to kill and, and, and given the skills and tools to kill are, are lawless in the barracks is frightening, terrifying. It should be extremely concerning. Uh, I went to OCS. And in 1979, I went to Fort Lewis, Washington, and uh, uh, was a, a platoon leader in a, in a company XO and battalion S2, uh, uh, S1 in, in, uh, in the 9th Infantry Division. Now, out of the entire division, recruiting was so bad, it was just so tragically bad, that a normal infantry company is three platoons of three squads. Every company in the division had one platoon zeroed out. Of the remaining two platoons, they had one squad zeroed out. And so instead of nine squads being an infantry platoon, four squads were every infantry platoon, and they weren't, they weren't filled up. That's how bad it was. That's how the manpower was. It was the, I'm telling you, uh, recruiting was down, retention was down. Uh, Jimmy Carter was president. Uh, the, the communists took over uh, over over uh, Mozambique, Angola, Ethiopia, Nicaragua. Uh, we threw the shop I ran out of the bus, and we gave the Panama Canal away. I mean, those were four really bad years. And then Ronald Reagan became president, and the parents and the citizens trusted their leadership. And they enlisted. And there's just like this flow of great people coming into our armed forces. And we were so hollow. We were so broken. It's hard to understand. 
in in those mid seventies, how desperately bad the post Vietnam era was, the collapse of, of Vietnam. Just like we abandoned Afghanistan, we abandoned Vietnam, and the same thing happened. But it was it was it was stunning to see how we could turn it around. And we drove, we got rid of the druggies. We had the the urinalysis program, the expeditious discharge program, and and it was just astounding to see how our nation can pivot on a dime. And 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 so my answer to your question is, uh, we don't know, but have faith in our nation, have faith in our way of life, have faith in the DNA carved into the soul of our nation, with the with the with the ten with the with the the, 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 the you know the first and second amendment and all the others that come with that package. Have faith in our nation. Have faith in our way of life. Uh, I, I saw us, and not a lot of people can realize it. At a tragically low time, and during that time, we also had violence up. We had record number of cops murdered in the line of duty. Uh, that was uh, that was the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, our military was broken, but I saw it turn around in just a couple of years when when Ronald Reagan became president. You know, virtuous, honorable man became president, and and we pivoted on a dime. And good people enlisted, and uh, I I think our nation has the capacity to come back from this. Uh, I, I have faith in our way of life. That I'm, I, it just is really a, a great thing to kind of top it off with. When I present to law enforcement, recruiting is down, retention is down. I ask them, why do you stay in the fight? Well, all I can tell you is why I'm still in the fight. I'm 67 years old. Uh, for the last uh, 26 years, since I retired from the Army, 26 years ago, I've been on the road over 200 days a year. And two, three, four sometimes five, one time six cities a week, boom, 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 training and doing what I do. Waiting at home for me is my bride of, 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 of 48 years. Actually, this, this is our first, this, 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 we were married uh, 48 years ago, but we actually, I proposed to her. She was 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We, we are from Arkansas. And two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. Been in this ride with me 48 years. I love her more than life itself. But I get home one, maybe two nights a week, or a conjugal visit, clean underwear, back on the road. Because I love my wife, but I love our children and our children's children. Now in the blink of an eye, my grandson will be having children. My granddaughter is old enough to be dating, and she's out of, out of you know, and, and I believe... I asked my cops, what is the opposite of evil? And the opposite of evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, just as darkness the absence of light. We defeat evil with love. And I stay in the fight, 67 years old, still out there constantly going. I'm in good shape. My prayer, I can do it another 20 years because I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I love my God. I love my nation. I love my way of life. And it's worth fighting for. And if I quit, the bastards win. And the only way I can win is to stay in the fight. That you're staying in the fight with the podcast. And people listening to you, this podcast revolution, they're staying in the fight. They're, they're expanding their knowledge. They're identifying things they can do. And, and I tell you, if we love our children, if we love our way of life, if we love our nation, we love our God, we'll give 100%. That's what love means. Love means the worse it gets, harder you fight. And I believe if we if we love our nation, we love our children enough to lay our life down for them, then then that love, how do you fight evil with love? 
And you know what makes a great cop, a great first responder, is empathy. Another word for love. What if it was my family trapped in that burning building? What if it was my spouse had been assaulted? What if my child that had been raped? What if it was my family were killed by that drunk driver? And that empathy is just another word for love with the shoes on in action. And, and, and that's what makes a great cop, is that empathy. And that's what motivates them, is, is love. They're, they're never paid enough to, to do this job. Well, they do the job because I like to boss people around. <laughs> that's one of the craziest things. Oh, yeah, cops are doing that job because they like to boss people around. <laughs> they get mouthed off and offended and disrespected more than anybody else in the world. And yet they do more good in a week than most people do in a lifetime. And, and they're doing this job because they want to make a difference. They want to make the world a better place. They, they want to use their life to make the world just a little bit better place. And, and I think that's, that's the motivation. I, I, I've seen our nation in some, some bad places. I, I've seen our nation turn around. And I have confidence that, that we can do this again. But what is needed is, is love. And as we love our family, if we love our children, then we'll do the right thing for them. We'll do enough other things we can do and protect them. As we love our nations, we love our God, we'll give 100%. And, and the only way we win is to stay in the fight. If I quit, then they win. And, and I tell people, you know, fighting with sheepdogs, fighting with people like us, is a little like wrestling with a pig. Everybody gets dirty, but the pig likes it. So uh, <laughs> stay in the fight, brother. Believe in what you're doing. Believe in our way of life. Uh, believe in the good things that are coming down the road. And, uh, and stay in this fight, brother, because, dear Lord, we need you. One of the things that worries me is that it feels like our institutions are decaying in a way that I don't know we've seen before. You take the military, and I don't know, maybe I'm just a little jaded from the chaos of COVID, and that's skewing my interpretation a little bit. But you look at the direction that it feels like they're trending. It doesn't feel like it's on solid ground. I mean, this is low-hanging fruit, but you have high-ranking officials in uniform, in drag, going on TV, preaching about how diversity is our most powerful tool. And you look at that and you think, that's not great. That's not going to stop a bullet. That's not going to prepare anybody for what they're going to experience should we go to war. Yeah. And, and then you of, compare with where we are, and it it just doesn't feel like we're tracking in a solid direction. You know, this this you know, I, I call it woke. I think a good umbrella term is this woke insanity. Uh, you know, at, at the end of World War II, uh, we think of our nation being at this greatest point. But there was this backlash at the end of World War II. Uh, the Doolittle Commission, uh, Jimmy Doolittle had led the Tokyo raid uh, uh, off the aircraft carriers. And uh, they said, well, the, you know, the, the Air Force did a great job in the war. And they don't do all this formations. They don't do all this march. And they're not worried about uniforms and haircuts. So why, does he, why does our military have to have all this discipline? And so they, at the end of World War II, they gutted the U.S. Armed Forces. The Army really lost discipline. Things like marching and formations, be like the Air Force, you know, and haircuts and uniforms. You don't worry about that stuff. And the Marine Corps, well, the only one said, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm a soldier, a bit, you know, but you got to say the Marine Corps, he said, we're not going to play that game. Uh, we don't have to play that game. But our Army, our armed forces have always been a reflection of our society. And there's always some social experiment they're going to inflict upon us. 
So the Korean War began, and the U.S. Army was hammered. And the Marines were the only truly functional fighting force we had. And once again, we pivoted on a dime. We brought back the old virtues and the old values. By the end of the Korean War, we'd, we'd essentially fixed the problem. But how much loss, how much harm was done? A great book called This Kind of War by T.R. Furenbach talks about how we went into Korea with a hollow army and how we were just hammered. I mean, it was just, it was murder to send troops to war without discipline, without structure, without all of the things that helped us win in World War II. Well, fast forward to the mid-1960s. We had uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and we had a war in Vietnam. And, uh, and we had what was called McNamara's 100,000. Uh, these were people that were cat 4Bs. Now, they break the, the population down into five categories. And the fourth to the lowest, or the second to the lowest category is Cat 4, and the lowest half of that is Cat 4B. These are people in World War II that wouldn't be drafted. But they said these people have been, have been socially repressed. Now, the military is a mechanism of social mobility. And so we're going we're gonna to draft 100,000 of these people. We're going to put them in the military, and, and they're going to get this opportunity for social mobility. Well, they died. They died at, at a horrendous rate. Uh, it, it was the study at one time said that that, that with the Cat Four Bs, the McNamara's hundred thousand, also called McNamara's morons, but these Cat Four Bs died at a rate about five times greater in combat than than a normal soldier, if you would. And it was said at that time to put a stupid man in combat is murder. I mean, the, 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 you, to load artillery is one thing. To to drive a truck is one thing, but the complex, incredible, diverse environment of combat, it, it, it needs, needs our best people. And, and so, once again, society inflicted upon our military the, the current social dynamics. And then, at the end of World War II, we had the, the, or at the end of Vietnam, uh, we had this whole drug culture. And the, the idea that, uh, that we could embrace the drug culture, we could have druggies in the barracks, and that that they had a right to do what they wanted to do with their bodies and that the drug culture could be in the barracks. And, uh, and this drug culture had destroyed us. So here's three parallel dynamics in which we, we saw the breakdown of, of discipline at the end of World War II that led to horrible things in Korea. We saw this idea that we could, we could draft people that wouldn't be drafted in World War II because of their mental status and put them in combat. <laughs> and all we did was people died because of it. And then we had the, the end of, 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 you know, the, 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 the druggies in the barracks and this idea that we can't enforce the drug laws. And we had urinalysis available. We wouldn't use it. We wouldn't get rid of them. In every single case, we turned around and got back on the right footing. So these can give us hope for the future. Uh, Churchill said something along the lines that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. He said, democracy or a republic such as ours is the least worst option. It will drive you crazy. It will drive you insane. But it's the best we got. And, and, and it, our armed forces are always being attacked by idiots who are trying to inflict the latest social fad upon our military. 
They're offended that the military was saluting and uniforms and stuff at the end of World War II. They were offended that you wouldn't let this poor guy in the army. They were offended that you would kick this guy out of the army for doing drugs. And here we are now again. They're offended that you, uh, you know, you, 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 you wouldn't respect these guys to, 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 to show up in drag, like you said, or whatever the case may be. You know, we are Klinger. Remember MASH? And Klinger was always dressing up in women's clothes, trying to get sent home. You know? <laughs> we got Klingers everywhere now, and that's cool. You know, we, 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 can't, uh, we can't stop that. You know, that's their right to do that. Uh, all, all I can tell you is that they'll drive you crazy, but it's good people like you and good people listening that will get us back on the right track. And this constant bouncing back and forth but is just the nature of the beast. Uh, have faith in our nation, have faith in our way of life. And uh, and in the end, it really does come back to faith. My book uh, on spiritual combat, uh, you know, we're, we're not God's puppets. Uh, God allows everybody to make their own decision. A lot of people make bad decisions. And at the end, we're in a battle against forces of evil. And you need to have a force for good on your side. And the book uh, on spiritual combat is certainly one I would recommend to kind of take that next step and take that big picture in the end, this world, bad things happen every day. But the greatest achievement is really eternity in heaven. And, uh, and, 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 and a civilization full of horrible is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to eternity in heaven. And, and that's really, you know, in the end, we can take a deep breath and step back, look at the big picture. And, and that's where it comes from, is that, 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 that spiritual side of that house. And that's one thing, again, that we, we can do is hand things over to a higher power. And, and, uh, and, and I think faith is a vital part of the, of the equation. And that's one of the things our civilization has seen in recent years. We've seen a drop off in, in if you will, faith. And you talk about yourself struggling to, to kind of find your path. Uh, I think the book on spiritual combat is my best shot at, at taking that. And then um, that's really basic training. And then just came out January 1st, uh, just what, a week ago, is On Spiritual Warfare. Take it the next step if you want to go further. But we'll, we'll get a copy of On Spiritual Combat the mail to you. And, um, and just take a deep breath and step back. In the end, in the end, everybody dies. Don't pray for more time on this earth because we're all going to die. And in the end, every nation falls over my dead body. But everybody dies. Every nation falls. In the end, our son will die. But eternity continues. And if you think there's a remote possibility there might be an eternity, if you think there's a remote possibility there might be life after this life, then it's infinitely more important than anything else. And, and that's the most important thing we can possibly do, and it puts it all in perspective. Everybody dies. Every nation falls. Our son will die but eternity continues. And that's really our great hope. And, and, and I, I, I pray that for you and for your listeners, that the peace that comes with that and, the, and this, the guidance that when we do that then for our nation and for our family and for our way of life is it's virtuous and a beautiful thing. You can find comfort in the fact that the pendulum always swings. I think the challenge is, I mean, even from those cases that you supplied there, it sounds like we needed a catalyst to wake us up. And my fear that is that catalyst is going to be another war. And what happens when that war isn't fought with the technological superiority that we've had in the past? What happens when we're playing with another player who's on par? You're right. And, and that's, you know, that's China is our, is our par 
you know, you're near par threat, uh, enormous resources and, and, and determination. Uh, and, and, you know, I have faith, uh, but if this nation falls, in the end, every nation falls well, over my dead body, right? Uh, we're going to do everything in our power. But take that sooner or later, we're all going to die. You know, we should bring everything to God in prayer. Bring everything to God in prayer. But understand what's really important. A few more years on this earth, a few more years for this nation are, are nothing compared to eternity in heaven uh, for, for, for large numbers of people. Uh, so I, I, you're right. These are trying, tragic, desperate times. Our nation, and the scary part is people don't even know it. Uh, as far as the pendulum swinging, uh, when we talk about things like murder rate, when we talk about the number of cops murdered in the line of duty, we talk about the level of violence internally, we've never seen anything like this. The pendulum is swinging far, far more than anything we've ever seen before. Uh, all we can do is, is, is have faith, uh, do the best we can. Right? What are the things you can control? Uh, listening to good podcasts, being an informed citizen, uh, using your vote virtuously, getting involved in local politics. You know, we talk about concealed carry laws. California is really going county by county. And they're firing sheriffs and hiring sheriffs across California, county by county, because they won't provide concealed carry. And uh, and we're seeing that. One of the things that California is like this little microcosm of how America was 20 years ago with, you know, the, with concealed carry states and non-concealed carry states. Well, now we've got we got whole counties that are that are going back and forth and fighting. Get involved in local politics. Get involved in school board elections, and, uh, uh, and truly, that's where your vote can make an enormous difference. Uh, get involved. Identify the things you can do and do them, and uh, and and have faith in in our way of life. Identify the things you can control and let go of everything else. And, and that's all we can do. Don't don't get spin into despair. Don't get lost into despair or. Uh, or, 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 or cynicism or, or, or denial, uh, just identify the things you can do and do them. And, and certainly you know, you're on that path. And I think people listening here are on that path. And, 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 you know, to all of you, all I can say is, you know, God bless you and God bless America. Yeah. I'm on a path. I'm just trying to figure out which path that is. <laughs> I wanted to ask you here before we go, do you think had your experience in the military been different and had you been in combat and had you been faced with the decision to take a life and done it, do you think about how that would have altered your tra trajectory or if it would have? You know, it's interesting. Um, my war was a cold war. I came in in 74, got out in 97. Uh, in the 80s, I was conducting interviews for my book on killing. And, uh, uh, and I interviewed the Vietnam vets, and I, I dissected this thing about killing. And, you know, you can't help but think, you know, I've never done what these guys have done. I've never been where they've been. But over and over, they said, if you'd have been in the middle of it, I don't think you'd have been able to do what you're doing right now. To be an outside observer, to be able to to, to do this scientific dynamic. Nobody else has ever done anything like it. General Westmoreland wrote a, a, a thing about the book. He said, nobody's ever written a book like it on killing you. So to my knowledge, nothing's ever been done like it. They said, if you've been in the middle of it, you wouldn't have been able to do what you did. So I, I take some peace in that. You know, God's in control. I, I fought the fight that was in front of me every step of the way. Uh, but uh, it, it really, 
almost like you were, the whole thing was crafted for such a time as this to where I am right now, you know, and, uh, and book two books out, you know, on hunting out now on, on spiritual warfare out, keep on fighting the good fight every day. Uh, I'm, I'm really content without all turned out. And you're right. If I'd have been in the fight somewhere, if I'd have been knee deep in the situation, I, I might not ever have had that opportunity to stand back, make that rational assessment. And I to be somebody, objective uh, about it. Yeah, my, my, my grandson graduated from AIT. He, he went Intel, you know, smart. Uh, you know, I was a grunt. You know, my grandson becomes Intel, smart kid. And uh, we went to his AIT graduation, and, uh, and I was there for his graduation. One of his good buddies uh, had been gone to basic and AIT with him, didn't have family there. So we took a day, and we went and played for a day. We went up uh, to the nearby city, and we, we played for a day. And the very, very thoughtful kid, his good buddy, a Hispanic kid, uh, he said, he said, uh, do you have any regrets? He said, are you happy? That's what he said, are you happy with how it turned out? Would you, would you change anything? Would you change anything if you could? I said, no, no. Uh, I really wouldn't change anything because then I wouldn't be where I am right now. And I'm pretty happy with where I am. There are little things, people that I hurt, decisions that I made, I wish I'd go back and fix. We all have those regrets. But any major changes would mean I'm not where I am right now. And, and I'm really pretty content with where this is. I wouldn't want to do anything that would break this. So the answer to the question is, I'm, you know, I, I'm really, I really have this sense of peace of how it all turned out. I think it was made to be this way and was made possible. You can't help but, but you know, you look at people. I got a son who just retired after 27 years and nine combat tours and three bronze stars. And you can't help but look at him and say, man, you know, what did I do? And I, what have I done compared to that kid? I don't, I don't you know, I, I'm a peacetime soldier. I don't even like to wear my uniform anymore because the kids with, you know, with, with combat stuff everywhere, who am I, you know, compared to these kids? But uh, I did the best I could in the time I was given. I think it was possible to, to push the envelope. Uh, I, I wanted to do this book on hunting for decades. I knew it was on killing, on combat, on hunting. I knew it needed to be done. Uh, and I got that book out this year. Uh, that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. You know, the two books I wrote during the pandemic, it wouldn't have happened without that. So you can't regret that, you know. Uh, uh, you got to look back and see where you are. And so what I've made any major changes. Am I content with my family? Am I content with where I'm at right now? And, and I think most of us can have a, a degree of peace by saying, you know, where we're at right now is a pretty good place. You know, we're not in jail. You know, we're not dead. We're not, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're not uh, uh, living some some tragic, tragic life. Uh, most of us listening to this podcast are in a pretty good place in a pretty good nation. There's got to be a degree of satisfaction with who we are and where we are. And I, I certainly feel that that degree of peace with, that I've been able to, to use the time fairly, fairly well. Okay, well, Dave, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. It's my pleasure, my honor. Again, I honor you and I honor your listeners. You know, I, I was on 20, 20, I was on 2020 and 60 minutes back in the day and it achieved nothing. It was a five minute soundbite that nobody remembered a week later. But the podcast revolution is something else. You and the good people who are listening, you represent something really can make us be reassured that our nation has the potential to, to just come back from this situation again, like we do over and over again, get our feet back in the ground and drive on have faith in our way of life and have faith in God and our nation and 
God bless you, brother. Thank you. God bless you. Do you want to plug where people can find your past work on hunting, <laughs> all your stuff? Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, GrossmanOnTruth.com. G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N-O-N-T-R-U-T-H. GrossmanOnTruth.com. The truth on killing, the truth on combat. We, we kind of rebranded uh, and I was killology.com and killology was intentionally provocative. We came under attack. We just sidestepped, you know, it's, it was, it's academic judo. Uh, you don't meet them head to head. You sidestep and we became a crossman on truth, the truth on killing, the truth on combat. And uh, we got our books listed there and uh, uh, you get the books on Amazon if you're interested, but all the books are listed at grossmanontruth.com. And uh, our website's got all that put together there. And uh, we'll, uh, we've obviously very active on social media. We'll mention this podcast on social media, hopefully, and get you some, uh, get you some people who otherwise wouldn't know about the good work you're doing out there and uh, bring them on board. And I mean, it all works together. Yeah. And I can't recommend on killing enough for people that haven't read it. It's, it's, it's a really solid read. And I really think on combat is a notch better. Uh, I, I, I had a Marine tell me, he said, I couldn't believe how good on killing was. I couldn't believe on combat was even better. About 95% of the readers believe that. The other 5% don't hurt my feelings. <laughs> but uh, I think you'll find that you can roll into the next book and say, yeah, this takes it even a step further. And, and thanks for the, the kind words about the book. I appreciate that. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Uh, God bless you, David.